Hello, and welcome back to Let's Talk Chemistry, a podcast by ChemTalk. On today's episode, we interview Dr. Richard Zare, a Marguerite Blake Wilbur Professor of Natural Sciences and Physics at Stanford University. Dr. Zare earned his PhD in chemical physics at Harvard University and currently researches the many applications of water droplets. We hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome back to Let's Talk Chemistry. I'm one of your co-hosts, Youngsa, and today we will hear from Dr. Richard Zare and explore the exciting world of droplets and their immense power. And I'm Olivia. Dr. Zare is the Marguerite Blake Wilbur Professor of Natural Science at Stanford's Department of Chemistry. He is a pioneer in lasers and using them to study intricate chemical reactions. For his applications of laser techniques in complex molecular mechanisms and analytical chemistry, Dr. Zare was awarded the Wolf Prize in Chemistry in 2005 by a unanimous decision from the committee. For our listeners who aren't too familiar with this prize, the Wolf Prize in Chemistry is often considered the most prestigious award in chemistry after the Nobel Prize. So it's a pretty big deal in our world. But aside from these fancy awards and recognition, Dr. Zare has an incredible heart. He is known for his humility, his zeal for discoveries, and especially his love for mentoring students. We are incredibly excited to share his stories with you guys. My name is Professor Richard Zare, but everyone who knows me calls me Dick, which is a nickname for Richard. I got that when I moved to a school and there was a much larger, stronger Richard who told me I could no longer be Richard. I'd have to change my name. So that's what I did. (laughs) Anyways, I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. My parents married when my father was in graduate school at Ohio State University. My father wanted to be a chemist, but actually failed out of graduate school. There were chemistry books lying around the house, and they very much interested me because they brought strong emotional reactions from my parents, which said, leave them alone. They only lead to unhappiness. And so consequently, I took them and I would read them under the covers of my bed with a flashlight. And I became very interested in chemistry. At that time, it was possible growing up to get any chemicals you wanted by going to the local pharmacist. Depends where you live, you'll be called a chemist, a druggist, whatever, pharmacist. So I ordered such things as charcoal and sulfur and potassium nitrate. And the uh, pharmacist asked me if I knew what I was doing because I had assembled the ingredients of gunpowder. And I said, yes. I enjoyed lots of things, particularly I enjoyed burning magnesium because it was so bright. I did set my basement of my house once on fire. Uh, So I enjoyed playing around that way. If you can't already tell from the first two minutes of our interview, Dr. Zare is not afraid to be vulnerable or open with the world. I admire that he would read books under a blanket with a flashlight. I also find it fascinating that he would buy chemicals from a pharmacist to play around with science. Me too. Although almost burning his house down in the process does not sound like the most fun. But even from a very young age, Dr. Zare has cultivated this sense of curiosity. Perhaps it would be fun for me to explain to you my earliest chemistry experiment. This happened at about age four. I received a spanking from some misbehavior, which I'm sure was deserved. And in retaliation, I decided to urinate in my father's tropical fish aquarium. And to my surprise, this ended up killing the tropical fish. And I was at once impressed with the power of chemistry. This led to another spanking. (laughs) 
My mother liked to sleep late and I was put in charge of cooking for my brother. So I would actually take a stool and stand up by the stove and make him such things as scrambled eggs. But I was already into experimentation. My poor brother, Michael, I said, here, Mikey, try these eggs. And I would put sugar on them. Then I would put Tabasco sauce on them. Then I put vinegar on them, etc. You like this, Mikey? And so I kept playing <laughs> with the food. So my earliest experiments were of that sort. And indeed, I, I still like very much to cook. Interest in science can really spark from anywhere, from unintentional accidents at an aquarium to cooking eggs. Yeah, totally. Cooking in itself is very similar to science. We test different ratios of ingredients and formulate the best recipe before we can repeat it over and over again. Cooking reminds me of troubleshooting procedures in the lab for sure. Dr. Zare has continued this passion for cooking and even teaches a course at Stanford on the chemistry of cooking. That sounds super cool. My university actually offered a course just like that. Unfortunately, it was for non-majors who needed a science gen ed credit, so I wasn't able to take it, but if I had the chance, I totally would have. Me as well. Let's hear more about his current research on water droplets. And people first think, well, water droplets are just small, nothing happens. Water itself is a benign and inert, wonderful solvent, right? Almost a universal solvent. Indeed, all types of polar compounds dissolve in water. We know this, right? Turns out that when you make little water droplets, they're highly reactive. And this comes as, as a surprise. What happens is that the interface between the hydrophilic, water-loving inner surface, inner part, and the hydrophobic outside, whether it's an air or an oil or touching some type of surface, the result is to set up an, what's called an electric double layer. Its charges separate on the sides of the interface, and these separation of charges leads to a very strong electric field, which with Professor Wei Min and group at Columbia, we actually measured to be quite large. And this electric field helps such things as contact electrification. You actually get electrons to come off water or to come off OH minus and to produce the hydroxyl radical, that's OH dot. Okay, and hydroxyl radical is what cleans up the atmosphere. It's very powerful. Right. Let's talk a little bit more about water. I mean, we are almost always surrounded by it, whether that's our drinking water or swimming water. It plays a crucial role in many aspects of life for sure. Water's molecular formula is H2O. Two hydrogens are bonded to a central oxygen atom. As Dr. Zare mentions, water droplets can help form an electric double layer. Yep. We have surfaces that love water called hydrophilic surfaces and surfaces that don't like water called hydrophobic surfaces. These two different types of surfaces separate, causing a separation of charge that then creates an electric field. Super cool. Dr. Zare also mentioned that the separation of electric charge makes these water droplets so reactive, a concept I haven't imagined before. Same here. And water also has other unique properties that makes it reactive. For example, they have a high surface area that allows for more interaction between the water molecule and other substances. This increased contact area enhances the likelihood of chemical reactions happening. And water, when stimulated with sunlight or energy, can also become a really reactive hydroxyl radical composed of one oxygen atom and one hydrogen atom bonded together. It also will have an unpaired electron, making it super unstable. Wow, the power of water droplets seems mighty. Here's the chemical reaction that Dr. Zare aims to accomplish through using water droplets. Well, let me say what type of chemistry it can do, because I think this will come as a surprise. We're actually able to fix nitrogen with water droplets. What do we mean by fixed nitrogen? Let's back up. 
Plants need nitrogen. Let's consider why. Well, nitrogen is what you find in amino acids. Nitrogen is what you find in chlorophyll. Nitrogen is what you find in DNA and RNA, right? You need nitrogen. The way nature has it is that there are microbes at the roots of plants which can make nitrogen to some, right? That's how it goes naturally. This fellow Malthus said, what was it, late 1800s, that we were all going to die because we're going to starve to death because the population of people was growing faster than the food supply. And so this is the so-called Malthusian catastrophe. Well, Malthus' calculations were correct, but he ignored the fact that there could be a technological change. And the big technological change was the invention of fertilizer. Now, fertilizer came about as a very interesting dual-use project. It was first developed by Fritz Haber in Germany. And the reason that Haber did this was because the supply of nitrates from Chile in, in South America were being cut off during World War I, and he needed explosives. Germany needed explosives. So they learned how to take hydrogen and nitrogen, and under high pressure, with a catalyst at a high temperature, they could turn it into NH3, which is ammonia. And then ammonia has gone on to make fertilizer. With ammonia, you can make ammonium nitrate, ammonium sulfate, ammonium phosphate. You can go on to make urea, and you can indeed feed the world. Okay, and people now make, oh, about 150 million metric tons of ammonia a year. Some amazing amount. Ammonia, though, is very eco-unfriendly. Now, I need to explain why. Where does the hydrogen come from? It comes primarily from methane, CH4, and that is done by treatment with steam. Okay, that's water in the vapor form, hot. So steam and CH4 go on to make such things as CO and hydrogen, and then the CO with another nickel catalyst is converted into CO2. All this is done with a lot of effort to get the hydrogen so that you can make ammonia. The Haber-Bosch process, Bosch is the person who perfected Haber's invention over a number of years, takes about 2% of the world's energy right now, global energy, 2%. And it actually produces 1% of the CO2 that you and I breathe. It actually is a source of generating CO2 and, and goes into the atmosphere generally. So it's not at all uh, an eco-friendly system. Now, what we've done is we've been able to take nitrogen in the air and combine it with water droplets at room temperature with no electricity being applied, no voltage, and no light being used, no photochemistry, no electrochemistry, no photochemistry, atmospheric pressure, and we're getting ammonia. And the ammonia dissolved in water, and we're hoping to see if we can scale this up. Right now we have droplets, but if we can scale it up, it will, in my opinion, change the world. The Haber-Bosch process is something that our podcast touches on from time to time. The impact this technique has on the globe is huge. I think it always helps to go through the science and stories behind it again. I totally agree. The Haber process, or also known as the Haber-Bosch process, was developed by the German chemist Fritz Haber and the chemist Karl Bosch in the early 20th century. They each played a separate role. Haber was primarily responsible for the discovery and development of the process, while Bosch played a crucial role in the commercialization of the process. Both of them won a Nobel Prize in chemistry for their work. Yeah, when you think of the Haber-Bosch process, think of nitrogen, ammonia, or NH3 as a vital component of fertilizer in agriculture. It's also found in our body as part of proteins. 
It is also found in explosives, dyes, and plastics. So pretty important, I'd say. Yep. Nitrogen, which is found as a gas in our environment, has a triple bond. This makes the bond super hard to break. The Haber-Bosch process found a way to produce ammonia from nitrogen more easily. Converting this inert nitrogen gas to a useful form is called fixation. This fixation of nitrogen into ammonia helped feed the world as agriculture boomed. But there is also a dark turn. Right. This process of making more ammonia had another goal during that time in history, as Dr. Zare mentioned. It helped prolong wars as more gunpowder and explosives could be produced. It helped fuel more harm to many innocent people. The world praised Haber for pulling bread from the air, but he began using his discovery with the government in developing weapons and producing poisonous gases. His wife, Clara Emmerwar, a chemist and pacifist, publicly opposed her husband's work. She wrote his work was, quote, a sign of barbarity, corrupting the very discipline which ought to bring new insight into life. This all reminds me a lot of our latest podcast episode with Dr. Razia and chemical security and safety. Yes, chemicals can do good, but they can also do great harm. We need experts in chemical threats to help create policies regarding the dangers of chemicals like toxic gas and chemical warfare, and in this case, including ammonia. I really like that connection to a previous episode. Science can always be a double-edged sword for sure. The Haber-Bosch process is also still a really energy-intensive process. Totally. It does use a ton of fossil fuels and contributes heavily to greenhouse gas emissions, which then hurts our climate crisis. That's why I think Dr. Zare's research on using these water droplets to fix nitrogen is super exciting and super good. The world will continue to rely on agriculture for food, but we cannot keep continuing to use the same methods before we knew about their negative impacts on Earth. And while he is currently working at the micron scale on his research, he hopes to make it a larger scale one day. Truly, this could change our world for the better. There are some really other intriguing applications for Dr. Zare's work on droplets, other than a more friendly climate nitrogen fixing as well. Let's hear what he has to say. And chemistry is so exciting because, you know, it's the stuff of the world and it has a chance of really making things that make a much better life. Now, now, as you know, once you get power, you can use power for good or for evil. But chemistry does give you power and we have to think about its uses. One area I've become quite interested in is using droplets to do imaging of tissue. Starting off with a wonderful person who was a postdoc in my lab, Olivia uh, Eberlin, who's now at Baylor Medical School, who came from Grand Cook's lab where this started. And indeed, if you send droplets and splatter them off of a surface, okay, you fire them into a surface, they splash, you intercept the splash with a mass spectrometer, you can determine all the chemicals that the droplet has dissolved. And now if you make your droplets small, and if you move the droplet source around, you can raster it like how a television screen works, and you can make an image, okay? And so we can get a chemical map of a tissue. So what does this chemical map tell us? Well, it tells us what part of the tissue is sick and what part of the tissue is well. What part's cancerous, what part is benign? How do we do that? Now comes the next important thing that's mentioned, and it's actually very modern in a sense. You need machine learning. You need artificial intelligence. And I'm going to try to explain why and what advantage that is now bringing to chemistry. If I'm given in my hands two objects and I'm asked to weigh them, which one's heavier, which one's lighter, no problem. I can do that all the time. 
If I'm given 20 objects and I'm said, please tell me the order of their weights. Well, it takes me a lot of work to figure this out as to order them as to their weights, right? Whereas a computer takes no time at all to look at a bunch of intensities of different chemicals and say, which one's more intense, which one's less. And what the computer's trying to do is it's looking for a pattern. Now, a lot of people say, you should go find the biomarker about some disease. And I'm telling you, our approach is not a biomarker, but a whole bunch of biomarkers in a pattern. And we train the computer. We give the computer first information. This is from sick tissue. This is from well tissue. And the computer looks at this and it says, ah, if you're sick, you have this type of pattern. If you're well, you have that type of pattern. Then we give it a new tissue and we say, look at the pattern this tissue has. Does it look more like well or more like sick? And that's how the computer can predict oh, what it is that we're looking at. This then can tell the surgeon where to cut. Anybody who's been involved, for example, in removing tumors, I mean, of course, that's the best way generally in cancer treatment is to be able to cut it out. But there's a question of the margin. How far should you cut? This is a very serious matter. In many ways, you don't want to cut too much, right? That's a mess. And you don't want to cut too little because then if you leave cancer behind, it grows again. We're thinking we'll be able to do this in a much better way. Actually, we think even more accurate way and a faster way by using this form of what's called desorption electrospray ionization mass spectrometry imaging. They're a mouthful. We've been particularly interested in fluids, in bodily secretions. And it's amazing how people first don't seem to care about their bodily secretions. I'll give you an example. We take a microscope slide and we draw it across the forehead. This picks up sweat. Most people say, so what? It's sweat. Okay, we can then analyze the chemicals in the sweat. And with training of the computer, this computer will tell you from the sweat whether you're a man or a woman with very high accuracy. It's not based on hormones. It's based actually on what are called lipids and metabolites that you have. And it'll tell you your age approximately. And it'll tell you whether or not you grew up in Asia or in Europe or in the United States, et cetera. It'll give you all types of information. I was so excited about this when we first was able to do this that I went to the Office of Technology Licensing at Stanford to get a patent on this. And I was talking to this woman and she looked at me and she says, Dick, you know, this is not that interesting. She says, if I look at someone, I also too can guess their age and see whether they're a man or a woman and so forth. And I said, but look, I can do this with a fingerprint, which is true. I just need sweat. I just need something like this. And you can't do it from a fingerprint, but this system can. So this has gone on and it really is the beginning of personalized medicine. We've been able to take all types of things such as spit or urine and analyze, for example, in the case of spit, whether or not you have oral cancer, or in the case of urine, whether you have bladder cancer. We're hoping this will be a big change in the way of making medicine happen. Medical doctors are wonderful, but they're actually overworked. If you've watched anybody working with medical doctors, they're busy all the time dealing with so many sick people. The breakthroughs come from chemistry. I love his enthusiasm. Yes, chemistry can make our lives so much better. The discoveries and inventions chemists have made did and continue to leave positive impacts. And Dr. Zare's interest in the use of water droplets in the medical lens is super important. I totally agree. 
The idea that just using our sweat could teach us a lot about our health sounds revolutionary. I hope we are able to see droplets for imaging tissues as well soon. Same here. Being a doctor is an incredible profession, but being a scientist who helps advance the techniques in that field is also valuable. Both save lives, just in different ways. Exactly. And speaking of lives, Dr. Zare has been involved in this really cool research on potentially discovering evidence for life on Mars. He wonders how we go from non-life to life and ponders on these reactive water droplets. But first, let's hear a little more about what went down. Now, whether or not there's life on Mars is still a debatable matter at all. I, I got involved in, in analyzing things. This is Simon Clement and my group and uh, others. And indeed, quite a story. We were looking and seeing organic molecules in meteorites. We had learned how to do this using a laser technique in which we fired an infrared laser, which heated up the meteorite so fast that it had caused molecules to evaporate without decomposing. And then the second laser in the UV would ionize them. And then with, because they were an ion, a mass spectrometer could look at their mass to charge ratio and, and identify what they were. And so we were finding a whole bunch of things and getting quite excited about looking at isotopes and seeing that they came from places in the universe, which had very different isotopic carbon-12 to carbon-13 than what you find on Earth. They really are quite, quite amazing things we were getting involved in. I met some people and they said, would you look at these meteorites from us from the Johnson Space Center? Well, okay, sure. But, you know, why? And they said, well, we want to give them some code names. So we're going to send you a Mickey, like a Mickey Mouse. And we want you to look at Mickey and tell us what you see. Okay, we look at Mickey and we find that it had what are called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons or PAHs in them. And they got all excited and they say, if what you say is true, and I said, yes, it's true. He says, you have found the first organic molecules from Mars. And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, well, these particular meteorites that were found in Antarctica came from Mars. We know this because we'd sent these Viking missions to Mars and we'd gotten the isotope ratios of things. And we could identify that these meteorites were from Mars, that they'd come to Earth. And we'd found, therefore, these organic molecules. And they went on to say that they had some microscopic information that suggested there were some primitive life forms. Whether that's true or not, again, people argue about but it was exciting. And whereas I didn't know for sure what we found, thought it was possible that we're seeing some primitive life. I've had people who know for sure one way or the other, both, but this exciting area. We don't understand. That's actually one of the things that, again, very much intrigues me. How do you go from non-life to life? Long ago, the earth was too hot to have anything like life as we now know it. Then it cooled off. And in a relatively short period of time, single-celled life came about. And then later on, as we look through the fossil records, we start to see multi-cells. We go on and through this. And, uh, you know, you can look for intelligent life. It's not clear we've ever found intelligent life anywhere, including now. But that's another matter. <laughs> Anyways, how do we get there? Again, I'm now excited about the thought that water micro droplets really can make chemical transformations that will take non-living chemicals and make them into the biological building blocks of life. So that's an area I'm very much wanting to explore. The story here is also super interesting. Picture this. You are a geologist on a warm summer day in Antarctica. It is December 27th, 1984. The routine is routine. The view is nice, but there seems to be nothing of interest. But then you see it. 
a dark green spot. Could this be from outer space? Yep. This is what geologist Roberta Score and her team went through. They discovered this foreign rock and labeled it ALH84001. Researchers soon realized that it was from Mars, incredibly ancient and predating any rock on Earth. Geologists and researchers saw magnetic crystals that could be made by microbes. Many were skeptical. NASA then sent two samples of ALH84001 to Dr. Zare, our laser technique expert, to analyze chemical molecules using his laser mass spectrometer. As Dr. Zare mentioned, NASA didn't want him to know what these rocks were and called them Mickey and Minnie, which is super cute. This also means Dr. Zare had no idea what he was looking at. He didn't realize how big his discovery was. He found organics. He found complex organic molecules called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which can be formed non-biologically, but more prominently wherever life has been. What Dr. Zare and his team found on ALH84001 was exactly what we expect to see when bacterial cells decay. His work got published in Science with the research article titled Search for Past Life on Mars, Possible Relic Biogenic Activity in Martian Meteorite, ALH84001. Life on Mars is still not proven yet, but this breakthrough remains huge. But for Dr. Zare, this project is just one out of many other exciting studies. He is passionate about many other topics, as we have already seen. He is curious about many unknowns and applications. When we asked him about what keeps him awake at night now, he said many different things, actually. Well, there's so many different possibilities of things. I'm not sure what to say. I find many interesting questions to look at. Most recently, I've gotten involved in another area, a very strange area. I've gotten involved in scorpion venom and what it's good for and the fact that some of nature can be used to make cures for things. And so I'm very interested in the fact that people have been learning about all types of natural medicines from plants and so forth. And different cultures have different things. And some of them work. Some of them don't. Some of them actually are no good at all. But some of them really work. Why do they work? We're still learning about what they really contain. And if we can, in the case of scorpion venom, well, it's very, you don't want to catch scorpions all the time. You want to learn what it is. And then you want to learn how to make the compound. And, and you have a new pharmaceutical, maybe things of this sort. So I'm interested very much in the, this connection of health and medicine and chemistry. Uh, also, as you notice, sustainability. I think we have to find out new ways of generating energy and so forth, which we keep a clean world. Uh, these are on my mind. Yes. He also shares some advice for us aspiring and current and future scientists. The people often come, and I mean, I've seen this happen, particularly graduate school. They come and they think they're going to learn a method, learn a tool. And the truth is, whatever tool they're going to learn in about 20 years, they'll wish they had learned another tool. There'll be something else going along. And it's not a matter of tools. It's a matter of problem solving. You have to get into the attitude of how you solve problems. That's the key to really having success in research, in my mind, is openness to problem solving. And the ability, actually, to learn from failure. <laughs> Believe me, most of what we do fails. It fails all the time. But I'm telling you this. If you are the type of person who can't tolerate failure, you can't succeed at research. If you don't fail enough times, you can't possibly succeed. I mean it. <laughs> so failure is something you learn to live with. And you learn, if you can, to benefit from it. This is an important attitude. 
And the other thing I'm very much advocating is if you know the, the story about Peter Pan, Peter Pan had it right. Don't grow up. And what I mean by this is that you were born with a sense of curiosity. And often adults get unhappy with you. And they, they tell you, quit asking why. Well, pay no attention to them. Keep asking why. Keep wondering. And indeed, the world is a wondrous place. And uh, you can find answers and go on. And it's very satisfying. I really like the reference to Peter Pan. Don't grow up. Keep wondering. Keep asking why. These are all lessons I wish my school taught me. Yeah, totally agree. Einstein once said that the important thing is not to stop questioning. Curiosity has its own reason for existing. And that man was a genius. We also couldn't help but ask Dr. Zair what drives him. His answer was surprising and raw. It's complicated. It's not simple. I'm sure the beginning of what drove me was I was trying very hard to please my father. I didn't understand that my father actually was not that capable of showing much love. That was just his nature. And so in some sense, I felt badly that I never really pleased him <laughs> the way I wanted to. Later on, I found it was very exciting to be able to share insights with other people, to tell them about things. And that's why, actually, I love teaching, too. Teaching is a secret weapon in doing research. Because if, if you want to teach, you have to really think about why is it so and question how can you convince anyone that something you're telling them is right? And this is the same type of doubting and believing at the same time that's the key to research. <laughs> so I like teaching and find always when I teach, no matter what it is, and I've taught beginning chemistry for a long, long time, I always learn something new from the process. It's great. I like sharing things, I say, with people. People say, oh, you must be a person who's very curious about the world. Yes, I have curiosity about the world. But now I'm telling you, curiosity is not enough. You have to have not only curiosity, but I actually want to share what I learn with others. Imagine, if you will, in this sense, I believe that, that science and art are much closer together than people give them credit for being. Suppose you were a painter, but you were told that you could paint pictures, but no one else could see them but yourself. Suppose you were a musician, a composer, and you could compose music, but no one else could listen to your compositions. This would be very disappointing. Similarly, I believe in making discoveries or learning about science, I want very much to communicate it and to talk with people about it and, and learn from that. So I think in that sense, they're very much together. It's a very human activity. I, to an extent, understand his wanting to earn his father's approval. We yearn for our parents to be proud of us. We want them to think highly of us in all that we do. Yeah, I completely agree. I also find it super insightful that teaching was a secret weapon of his research. Me too. Sharing what we learn with others can inspire us to see new directions and stay passionate about our current studies. I love what he said about science and art being similar. They're both attempts to comprehend and then explain the world around us. Yep. Artists and scientists approach problems in a similar fashion, with creativity, open-mindedness, and curiosity. And then we display it for the world to see. We cherish others appreciating and learning about our work. Dr. Zare also wanted to give some final advice, not just for the scientists, but for everyone who's listening out there. I have future advice for everybody in the following way. Please go find something that really interests you, something that you love and throw yourself into it. And when you throw yourself into that and study it as hard as you've studied anything before and work at it, you will find satisfaction, I believe, in a life well-lived. 
real fulfillment in living that type of life. That's my advice. And that doesn't have to be necessarily in science. It could be elsewhere. But that's my advice. And that's all we have for today. As Dr. Zara has said, keep on dreaming. Keep on exploring. You can change this world for the better one water droplet at a time. Thank you for listening to Let's Talk Chemistry, a podcast by ChemTalk. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information on today's episode and countless chemistry resources, please visit our website at www.chemistrytalk.org.